You're listening to Isaiah, a sermon series from Coram Deo Church in Omaha, Nebraska. For more resources, visit cdomaha.com. Today's reading is from Isaiah chapter 41, verse 1 through 20. Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach, let them speak. Let us together draw near for judgment. Who stirred up one from the east whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely. By paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first, and with the last I am he. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, Be strong. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith, and he who smooths with the hammer, him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, It is good. And they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. But you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. Those who are against you shall be as nothing at all. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. Fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I make of you a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them, and you shall make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the tempest shall scatter them. And you shall rejoice in the Lord, in the Holy One of Israel you shall glory. When the poor and needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valley. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive. I will set in the desert the cypress, the plain, and the pine together, that they may see and know, may consider and understand together. The hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. This is the Word of God. Well, good morning, Cormdale. Uh, wonderful to be here with you all this morning. It's a great joy to, to get to... Uh, to come up here, um, I've had the the honor, the, uh, the joy of preaching to you all on a, on a handful of occasions now, and um, it truly is uh, a blessing to me. Every time I come here, more and more of you look familiar to me, 
And um, it's, it's not just because we're graduating people and sending them up here. Kind of got the minor league thing going on down there. <laughs> Farm league. Um, but, but so many of you are, are just growing in familiarity. Um, and so I, I bring with you, I bring with me this morning to you, uh, just greetings from Two Pillars Church down in Lincoln. Um, I, I bring just blessings and peace and grace to you. We love you guys. Uh, we absolutely love you guys. There's no other church that we feel more uh, just love for, more grace towards, more uh, just unity with. Um, there, there's, there's no church that we feel a, a greater sense of what I would call sort of missiological unity with. And, and so it's just a great joy to get to be a part of your gathering today as we worship our, our God um, together. Um, I also want to thank you guys. I don't know if you guys know this or not, but you have sent... Uh, one of your own, down to Two Pillars this morning to, to preach the Word of God to the people of Two Pillars. Kyle Osborne is, is down there, and so um, he's going to be getting going here in about 20 minutes, and so you can be praying for him. Um, all we told people is that Osborne was coming. <laughs> so, probably going to have a good crowd. Let me pray for us one more time here, and then we're going to dig into Isaiah 41. If you're not in Isaiah 41 yet, get there while we while we pray, but um, Father, I, I just I want to stop and give thanks to you this morning. Um, thank you for the work that you are doing. Thank you for the work that, that you uh, begun and have continued to do through Coramdale. Uh, thank you for the work that you have begun and continue to do through Two Pillars. Um, God, as Bob and I prepare ourselves to do some church planter assessments with Acts 29 this coming week, we want to thank you and, and, and pray that you would continue to do your great work um, in those church plants as they get started and to continue as well. Um, God, I want to pray over Kyle this morning, who's down in Lincoln, and I pray that you would, um, just by your spirit, would you magnify your glory to the people of Two Pillars? Would you speak powerfully through him, and and would you communicate your word, and would you impress it uh, upon the hearts of the men and women that that call Two Pillars Church their home? And and God, as you do that, would you do that here with us as well? God, I also want to take a minute this morning and pray for the leaders of Cormdale. And God, it's, it's, a, it's a blessing to, to come up here and be prayed over um, by Bob. But also, I, I want to just pause and, and acknowledge, Lord, that the leaders of Cormdale need your prayer and your protection as well. And so I, I lift up especially my brother Bob, my brother Justin, my brother Dusty. God, I pray for your hand of protection over these men. I pray for your hand of protection over their life and over their ministry. I pray for your hand of protection over their marriages, over their families, over all the the work and the labor that they put forth for the people of of Coromdeo here, your people of Coromdeo here. And God, I pray that you would just sustain them and strengthen them and that you would use this morning to that end as well. God, we thank you for um, your work in our lives, your work in our churches. Um, God, would you center us now on Isaiah 41 in your word. Help us to hear from you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, Isaiah 41 is what we're looking at this morning, the first 20 verses to be a little bit more precise. And I'm going to take a, a little bit of a more devotional slant on this text. I hope that's going to be all right with you, and I'll tell you the, the why of that as we sort of go along here. Um, But before we get overly devotional, um, in in order to kind of get there, in order for the text to actually preach itself, we first have to understand the the context uh, of what's going on in Isaiah 41, which isn't that easy. It's not that easy. 
Okay, so what we're going to do this morning is look at context and then from context drive to devotion. The context is that that God's people are in exile. But Isaiah the prophet is not. Right? Because the exile that Isaiah is talking about has not yet happened. That's confusing, isn't it? That's confusing. That's why you guys are crazy for preaching through the book of Isaiah. You're even crazier for preaching through the book of Isaiah and then inviting other preachers who are not preaching through the book of Isaiah to come up here and help preach through the book of Isaiah. Crazy, and I love it. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. Here's the thing, though. Okay, Isaiah, maybe you know this um, if you've been tracking through your series here, and and maybe not because maybe you're new here. Um, But Isaiah, he lived right around the year 700 B.C., and uh, what's going on in chapter 41 is that Isaiah is, is prophesying of events that were yet to come in another 140 years or so when Judah, or at the southern kingdom of God's people in the Old Testament, when they would fall to the Babylonians. And the people of God would get carried away into exile. Right? So Isaiah the prophet is, is speaking here of a time that he has not lived in, nor is he going to live in. And he's, he's speaking to a people that he has not yet met. Nor is he ever going to meet on this side of heaven. And yet what I want to contend for this morning is that this text is absolutely relevant to those who were alive in Isaiah's day. And it's absolutely relevant and important and, and actually instrumental to us today. Um, how can I say that? Well, because Isaiah 41, it, what it does is it reveals the character of God. It reveals his character. And more specifically, in this text, we, us, together, God's people, living and active now, we receive the immeasurable reassurances of God our Father. That's devotional stuff right there. I need that. You need that. We need these, these immeasurable reassurances of God the Father. If you're here today and you don't believe in Jesus, you don't follow after Jesus, you don't even know that you need that, but you need that too. We all need the immeasurable reassurances of God the Father. And first here, let's, let's look at what's going on. Because these, these are all here, but let's look first at what's going on. Get some context. Look at the very first verse with me. Isaiah 41, verse 1. Isaiah says, Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach, then let them speak. Let us draw near for judgment. Now, now God here, what's going on is God, through Isaiah the prophet, He is, is speaking. He's speaking to Gentile nations, the coastlands, He calls them. He, he's speaking to those who do not believe in Him. Any skeptics in here this morning? Hmm? It's for you. It's for you too. All right. He says, he says, listen to me in silence. The, the, the setting here is a, a courtroom. We're drawing near for judgment, he says. To examine some evidence. Come in silence. And just this last week, I had the, the great opportunity to tour the Nebraska State Capitol, which is in Lincoln. Um, <laughs> well, had the great opportunity to tour the Nebraska State Capitol with my family. First time since like second grade. When I went in second grade, they didn't let me go to the top. The bus was leaving. I, I, did, I got ripped off. And so I got to go to the top last week, which was fun, but that's not the point. Um, one of the things that we got to see was the Nebraska State Supreme Courtroom, which is pretty incredible. Uh, when, we, when we went into the Nebraska State Capitol, something that I didn't realize is how, how, first off, that it's all made out of limestone. It's amazing, right? 
But I also didn't realize I underestimated how echoey limestone can actually be. And so I got my three little kids, right? And Vivian's 14, which means she's loud, right? And, and so the tour guide wants to go around giving the tour. Well, Vivian, she's got her own little tour thing going on, right? And it's, it's loud and it's noisy. People are being distracted. But then we go into this Nebraska State Supreme Courtroom and it's silent in there. Like there's this eerie silence in the room. It's a small room. There's heavy rugs on the floor. The, the ceiling is just covered with walnut wood. And, and the, the, the front and the back walls are too. So everything is absorbed. It dampens any reverberations that go on in that room. It's, it's silent. Why is it so silent? It's silent because what goes on in the courtroom is of utmost importance. It needs to be quiet in there. Listen to me in silence, God says here in verse 1. We're drawing together for judgment. The scene is a courtroom. There is a massively important issue to be decided. Shut your mouth and come in in silence, God says. And listen to what? L- listen to this line of questioning in verse 2. Who stirred up the one from the east? Whom victory meets at every step. He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. Now we need some more context. That's why it's so, it's so hard for us to enter into a, a book like Isaiah's because we don't know all the goings on here. He starts with a question. Who stirred up the one from the east whom victory meets at every step? Who did that? That is the primary question. Who did that? Who is the stirrer? There's a secondary question that we have to ask so we can understand what's really going on. And that secondary question is who is the him who is being stirred up? Two questions. Who's the stirrer? Who's the stir e? Right? And what you need to know is that the hymn who was stirred up, the stir-e, was Cyrus the Great. The, the, the founder of the Persian Empire. He, he's the one, uh, Isaiah says in, in verse 2, he's the one from the east whom victory meets at every step. So Isaiah is, is writing of events that were, were yet to happen. 140 years into the future, they're, they're going to happen. He's writing to to Jews who who would have been by that time carried off into exile by the Babylonians after the fall of Jerusalem in the year 586 B.C. And and during their time in exile, there was this another one who who was rising to power. The power was shifting from the Babylonians to the Persians. Cyrus the Great was coming into power. The Persian Empire was now spreading. It was thriving. It's now the power of the day. Listen again how Isaiah describes him. He, this is, this is uh, Cyrus the Great, he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. He's on the move. He's conquering. He's making it look easy. This is all about Cyrus the Great. He's the who that was stirred up from the east. So it ultimately lead to the, the Persians overthrowing and conquering the Babylonians in 539. Followed by the emancipation decree that we read about in the book of Ezra that ultimately leads to the Israelites who were in exile being set free to return to Jerusalem, bringing an end to their exile, and eventually to, to rebuild Jerusalem under the leadership of another Old Testament brother named Nehemiah. All right? 
That's the kind of context that you need to deal effectively with what's going on in Isaiah. It makes the brain work a little bit, doesn't it? it? makes it work a little bit. Now go back to the original courtroom question, though. Who stirred up Cyrus? Who is the stirrer? You see that? that? That's the question that Isaiah is ultimately concerned with. Who stirred up the one from the east? Look at verse 4. Who has performed and done this? Calling the generations from the beginning. I the Lord. The first. And with the last. I am He. This is an absolutely explicit declaration of the sovereignty of God over all things. Absolutely. Shut your mouth and enter the courtroom in silence. Who is sovereign over all things? Look around and see the chaos ensuing. See, see the king who trampled the king, right? See the king who trampled your king, your beloved city, carried you off into exile. See him being trampled. See him being captured. And seeing another king come in and being raised up to prominence. All while you sit in exile and watch and wonder, where's our God? What is going on here? Who's in control over all of this? Who's doing the stirring? I, the Lord, I am He. That's what our God says. And what comes next in verses 5 through 7 is a commentary on how godless people respond to such a rising power, to, to such chaos. And, and, and when I say godless, I mean Yahweh less, Christless. Right? How they respond in verse 5, it says that they're afraid. They tremble. They're fearful. When you understand what's really going on there in verses 5 through 7, they're running to their idols. They're manufacturing their idols. When it talks about the blacksmith and the craftsman who's smoothing and hammering and striking the anvil, they're making their idols. They're afraid. There's chaos around them. And they're making little g-gods to worship, to find their strength, to find their help, to find their hope in. They even mock the creator God of the universe, the sovereign one who really is in control of all things, as they make their idols with the hammer and anvil and say when they're done, it's good. Mocking God who in Genesis 1 created all things. And when he finished, he said, it's good. It's good. In Genesis 1, we have God the creator creating creation, calling it good. Here we have the creation trying to create their own gods to call them good. It's completely backwards. It's completely flipped around. And then they offer, you've got to love this, they, they offer one another, these who have not God in their life, they, also, they offer these pithy encouragements to one another. Be strong. You'll get through this. Focus on the good stuff. It's an empty encouragement because it's founded on nothing. That's the truth. And this is where it becomes devotional then. Isaiah here, beginning in verse 8, he contrasts two groups of people. His chosen ones, his people, he contrasts them from the people of the coastlands. Those who are far off. Those who are not his people. So those who are not his people, when the crap of life hits the fan of life, they turn to their idols for comfort. They, they turn to their idols for assurance, for strength, for help, 
to, to be upheld. But not God's people. They turn to God. They turn to God. They turn to the sovereign one, the Lord, the first and the last. Who do you turn to? When, when the crap of your life hits the fan of your life, who do you turn to? What do you, what do you turn to? What, what do you, where do you find rest for your soul? Where, what do you turn to for help? Where do you find strength and reassurance? What upholds you? Is it food? Is it spending money? Is it masturbation because in some strange way you've been finding comfort in the chaos there ever since you were a little boy? Is it yourself? Do you just work harder, longer? God doesn't have to be in control because you think you are. If you can just put enough hours in. If you can just step away and untangle it, untangle it all in your mind, lay it all out, some graph paper and Excel. Is it a person? Is it your spouse? What's your rock? What upholds you? This is the question that we are faced with when we really understand what's going on in Isaiah 41, when we really understand the context and then try to actually apply it into our lives. What follows here is one of the most incredible pieces of fatherly language that we have in one place in the Bible. We find immeasurable reassurances of God, our Father, here. There's fatherly language that's used here. And I know that you know that that God is our, our Heavenly Father. It's probably not a new concept to you to refer to Him that way. To begin your prayers by saying, Our Father, My Father. To pray in that way. I suppose that you know that that God is a trinity, that He is three persons in one God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's what we call the Trinity. But I want to remind us of that here because Isaiah isn't necessarily packed out with explicit father language. There's a, there's a lot of, on the surface, if we were just to open Isaiah and read through it, there's a lot of referring to God sort of in this vague general sense. God, Lord. A lot of us are tempted in in our actual lives, and our actual walks with God, to sort of refer to and interact with God in this sort of vague way. He's God. He's Lord. We'll get to the the part, eventually you're going to get to chapter 64 in Isaiah, where where Isaiah cries out, But now, O Lord, you are our Father. Our Father. The Sovereign One, who's in control of all things, is your Heavenly Father. But even before there, especially here, we see fatherly language, father, fatherly reassurances. Look at these in verse 10 with me. This is the word of the Lord. He says, fear not, I am with you. Be not dismayed. That word for dismayed carries the connotations of looking around frantically for a place of safety. Your your eyes darting back and forth trying to find that, that secure place. Fear not, I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all who are incensed against you, those who are raging against you, shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you or who are opposing you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not even find them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. That's God saying, I got this. 
I got this. You're going to show up and try to fix it. I've already taken care of it. I've got this. This is how much I love you and how much I care and do for you. In verse 13, For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, Fear not. I'm the one who helps you. Fear not, you worm Jacob. A reminder of our smallness in comparison to his infinitude. Fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I'm the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. You hear this? That's God, your perfect Heavenly Father, speaking to you. Speaking through Isaiah, to be sure. He's speaking to us. Speaking of a time that He has not lived in, nor will He ever live in. That's your life. It's speaking to a people he's never met, nor is he ever going to meet on this side of heaven. That's you. That's me. See, this isn't just for the exiles of Babylon. This is for the exiles of Omaha. This is for the exiles of, of Lincoln. It's for you and me. How can I say that? Because what is revealed here is the character of God, the unchangeable character of God, our Father. And you know and I know that one of the biggest hindrances that we have to, to receiving these immeasurable reassurances, maybe you don't know. One of the greatest hindrances we have of receiving these, these immeasurable reassurances of God as Father is, is actually our inability to effectively relate to God as Father. And so instead we relate to Him in vague and general terms. God, Lord, what happens then is we read things like verses 10 through 13. We read of these immeasurable reassurances and we say, that's nice. But it doesn't affect us. And we go back to our exile, back into the chaos of life, looking for strength and help apart from God, our Father. It's something that God's been bringing sort of front and center for me personally in the last eight months. Um, through a series of events and, and challenges and chaos in, in my personal life, but also in my ministry life, which are actually completely inseparable. <laughs> so why pastors take sabbaticals. It's the only off switch there is. And even that one doesn't work that great. Through things God has begun to reveal to me about myself in His grace, revealing sinful tendencies in my heart, sinful patterns in, in my life. Um... Speaking truth to me through my wife at times. Speaking truth to me through my fellow elders at times. Speaking truth to me through close friends at two pillars at times. Guiding me through a couple different counselors at times. The number one thing that God's been showing me over these last eight months, and here's how I'd summarize it, that I have an under-realized practical theology of what it means for God to be Father. I wonder if some of you do too. An underrealized practical theology of what it means for God to be followed. Now, now track with me. This is going to get devotional, and then we're going to circle back to the text. But allow yourself to, to follow this for just a second. We talk a lot about gospel-centeredness, don't we? I mean, like, I'm sure Coram Deo does. We, we just got done with this amazing liturgy that is extremely gospel-centered. Wonderfully gospel-centered. Wonderfully Christ-centered. And so we strive... As Christians, especially in these sort of circles that, that we are kind of running in, to be Christ-centered, it's all about Jesus. And it is. Don't miss that. But we talk a lot about the cross. We talk a lot about the blood. 
We talk a lot about this, the, the substitutionary atonement. We talk a lot about the forgiveness that is ours. We talk about being washed clean as snow by the blood of Christ. And we should. We talk about justification and how that's made possible by Christ's work on the cross. We talk about those things. When we put our theological helmets on, we talk about other things like propitiation and expiation and imputation and all the other Asians, right? We talk about all these things that have, that have happened through Christ's work on the cross, and we must not lose that. Because apart from that, talking about God as Father, actually doesn't make any sense at all. Because that relationship has not been reconciled. It all gets reconciled through Christ on the cross. However, when we focus only on the cross, and I'm not saying take your eyes off the cross. Please don't take your eyes off the cross. We better not lose Christ-centeredness. But sometimes, if we're not careful, what this begins to feel like is that we've come down the stairs on Christmas morning and we've looked under the tree and we found the most wonderful, most amazing gift in the entire world. It's everything that we'd ever wanted. Everything that we will ever want is there for us. Everything that we ever could need, everything we ever will need is there for us. And we open the gift and we look at the gift and we stare at the gift and we preach the gift and we receive the gift and we cherish the gift and we never stop to say, how much must I be loved by the one who gave me this gift? Who is the one who loves me so much to give me this gift? It's the Father. It's the Father. We talk a lot about Christ-centeredness. Let's not lose Christ-centeredness. We talk a lot about the Spirit's work too, don't we? Less so sometimes. Because there's this mysterious element a little bit of the the ghost, the Holy Ghost. We talk about His his work and sanctification in our lives. The Holy Spirit's work of sanctifying us. Now that we belong to God the Father through Christ's work in the cross. We talk about the the Spirit's empowering grace in, in our lives. We talk a lot about Jesus and the Spirit, and the Father sometimes ends up to be this distant figure of the Trinity who we don't actually know how to relate to. We know He's there. We know He's our Heavenly Father, but we don't effectively relate to Him in that way. Listen to how um, one theologian puts this, Dr. J.I. Packer. says of it this way. He says, If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his Father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. It's just as easily could have said, if this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand or or maybe does not receive the immeasurable reassurances of God the Father. And what do I mean when I say the immeasurable reassurances of God the Father. I want us to go back into the text and sort of draw these out and illustrate them for you. I want you to see this, this fatherly language. Look at verse 10 with me. We're just going to camp out there for a little bit. Verse 10. The word says this. says, Fear not, I'm with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. What if we looked at that from a fatherly perspective, right? Fear not, I, this Father, this Heavenly Father who loves you, is with you. Be not dismayed from your Father. Let me pull up that first picture. 
What a little monkey. This is Lydia. It's my second oldest daughter. She's six. She's awesome. Lydia's six. She's going to start the first grade next week. And um, somewhere around the time when Lydia was about four, we started experiencing something we hadn't really experienced with her up until that point. It happened at nighttime. She would begin to be filled with fear. And um, not in any abnormal, crazy sense, um, any more than any other four-year-old. And so, but here's, here's how that would look. Lydia, would, we'd put her to bed, we'd pray with her, we'd pray for protection over her, God put her mind at ease and comfort her spirit and remind her that God is with her. And she would, uh, she'd come downstairs some, sometime later, 20 minutes later, 30 minutes later, my wife and I are hanging out in the den, reading, talking, something like that. And she would come downstairs and she would say, Daddy, I'm scared. I'm scared. I'm afraid. And we'd, we'd talk a little bit about that and I'd pull her up into my lap and we would we just discuss how much I loved her and how much I was. Here's what I didn't do, right? I didn't look at her and say, you're afraid? Well, go figure that out on your own. Get back upstairs. Get in your bed. Some of you grew up with a father who spoke to you like that. Makes it kind of hard to relate to God as father, doesn't it? When Lydia comes down and she says, I'm afraid, I want to take her into my arms and trust me, I don't do this perfectly every time. There's probably some time where I say, get back up to your bed, right, and confess that to you. But on a good day when I'm filled with spirit, I take her into my arms and say, fear not, I'm with you. This is what I would offer. I'd say, look, look, you know, look, daddy loves you. And I'm here and God has entrusted you to me and I'm going to protect you. And to avoid like any sort of Messiah complex that she might create for me, right? I tell her, look, look, I don't have any strength of my own. God is actually sovereign. He's the one who's over this whole house, and he's protecting you too. But he's also called me to be here and, and to be your protector. And so fear not, I am with you. Do not be dismayed. Don't be looking around in the dark trying to find a place of safety to hide. I'm with you. I'm your dad. I'm your dad. Look at that next line here. It says, I will strengthen you, and I will help you. Can we pull up that next picture? This Iris. She's nine. She's starting the fourth grade next week. Uh, Iris is a typical number one kid, first, oldest, whatever you call it. And um, I've hesitated to, to talk much about this because my kids are getting to the age where they get a little bit uncomfortable when Dad talks about them in sermons. Um, she's not here, so we'll take some grace here. But honestly, there's only about three ways that we learn how to relate to God as Father. We learn to relate to God as Father first by our relationship with our earthly father, however good or horrible that is or was. We can also learn how to, I'm talking practically, tangibly, we can learn how to relate to God the Father through His Word. I'm talking tangibly and practically. We can learn how to relate to God the Father through watching other people parent their kids. And then we learn... How to relate to God the Father through parenting our own kids. Uh, Iris is, is nine, and Iris has been struggling lately with um, truth-telling. Not that uncommon um, for a nine-year-old. And, I mean, not like we're embracing that, and, like want to celebrate or anything like that. We're working, working that with her. One of the family rules of the Bumgarner house is don't lie. Uh, actually, it's always tell the truth. We want to be able to trust one another. The way this took shape uh, recently, a couple months back, is... Um, I mean, it's weird stuff. I like just little, like, kid stuff, right? 
Like I see Iris one night, we're getting ready for bed, and she takes off her shoes, and her feet are like all stained blue, because she wasn't wearing socks. Dumb stuff, right? Nothing major. And I say, make sure you get in the shower and scrub your feet before you get into bed. She does. She goes upstairs. Can't get it all off, of course. And I, after I put her into bed, I go down and tell my wife, just so you know, like, Iris wakes up in the morning, and I'm not here, and her feet are blue. It's not because, like, low circulation or anything like that. <laughs> she wasn't wearing socks today. And the feet stained her feet. My wife says, that's weird. She told me that she was. Little stuff that doesn't even matter, right? But it was, it was still a lie. And so I go back upstairs, and I, I take her into our, our little office nook that's off our bedroom, and I sit down with her, and... And I say, kiddo, here's the thing. Your, your mom tells me that you were wearing socks today. You told me that uh, I, I saw that you weren't. And, and so what's, what's going on? Oh, well, I was wearing them all day up until right before you saw me. I took them off. My feet were getting hot. <laughs> and, dude, I'm softy dad. So I'm like, that sounds plausible. <laughs> right? And then the, the spirit kind of hits me for a second. He's like, where are the socks? Let's find the socks. Let's bring forth the evidence into the courtroom of judgment, right? <laughs> and so I said, okay, sweetie, well, why don't you go grab those socks? Where are they at? And so she, oh, they're in the hamper. Another lie. So she goes into the bathroom, rummaging through the hamper. She's in there for about a minute. <laughs> and she can't find any socks. <laughs> and she comes back to where I'm at. And she enters into the room. And she dive bombs into my lap and says, I can't help it, Daddy. I can't help myself. And I I take her into my arms and I say, sweetie, I love you. I know you can't help yourself. I, I, I struggle with sin in the same ways. I have to cry out to a greater helper. All right? And I didn't preach it like that. I was bawling. And I take her into my arms and I say, kiddo, you do, you need help. You, you need help from someone else. You, you don't have what's, what you need with inside, what, you don't have inside of you what you need to be able to effectively conquer sin in your life. You need help. You need strength. And so I take her into my arms and we open up, we got a Bible in the room, we open it up to Romans 7 and say, hey, listen to this guy, Apostle Paul, struggle just like you. He says right here, he says, I do the things that I don't want to do and I don't do the things that I want to do. Who's going to save me? Who's going to save a wretch like me? Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Do you know God the Father like that? Do you know God's fatherly love? That, that, that When you fall, when you struggle like that, when you need help, can you go to Him and hear verse 10? I will be your strength. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I, the Father, the Lord, the God, your God, I will be your help. Come to me, dive bomb into me and say, I need your help. Do you know him like that? The last stanza of that verse. Isaiah writes, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Pull up that last picture. Look at this one. If she looks rowdy, it's because she is. Little gap-toothed crazy monster. This is Vivian. She's 14 months. She's going to drive my wife crazy next week when Iris and Lydia go back to school. Um, what a little monster. Last week, uh, we, we were out doing something, and um, I, I took Vivian home to put her to bed. It's a little bit past her bedtime. She's a little rowdy. and um, in, in her bed is like a full-size bed for guests and then like her crib thing, right? And, and so um, I, I lay her down on, on the bed just like I do every other night when I'm putting her to bed, and 
I'm going to change her diaper and put her jammies on. And uh, I, I lay her down there. She's giggling. She's being crazy, silly. She's sleep-deprived. I turn around to, to grab the diaper. I look at her. She's goofing off. I grab the diaper and I turn back just in time to see her like bouncing on the bed like this and then legs up in the air and over onto the ground. She fell hard. I mean like, boom. And we've had a kid that's broken an arm that way before. And, and so I, I pick her up and she's screaming, bawling. And I, and I hold her in my arms and I'm thinking, what's my wife going to do to me? And <laughs> this little child who I love, right? I start squeezing her arms. I'm thinking she's going to wail if one of them's broke. Is that a thing? I think that's a thing. <laughs> and I put her up on her own two feet just to see if she can stand. But I'm upholding her. She fell hard, but I'm upholding her. I'm her father. Do you know God like that? Do you know a God who will say to you, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand even when you fall hard? Even when you're hurt? Jump over to verse 13 with me. Isaiah writes here, I, the Lord, your God, remember your father, I, the Lord, your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I'm the one that helps you. What great imagery there. What great imagery of the father holding his child's hand. The heavenly father holding your hand. Pastor Cheech down in Two Pillars this is a wonderful illustration when he was preaching John 10 a couple months back. In John 10, where Jesus says, um, my sheep know my voice, and they come to me, nobody's going to snatch them out of my hand. Remember that part? And he, he illustrates it this way, and he says, Pastor she has got a big family. I can't remember how many kids he's got, five or six, something like that. And he, he's got all these little kids, and they go to, we have to cross South Street, some major street in Lincoln, to get into our church building. And he says, when we get out there, we say, hands. And him and his wife, they, they take a couple hands of each of the, the kids, and they, they, they're going to step out into the street. And here's what he says. He says, now, here's the deal. If a car comes... Swinging around the corner. Danger comes. What's not going to save my kid's life is their ability to hold on to my hand. But my ability to hold on to theirs. You see that? Do you know the father like that? Are you able to relate to God as father who, who says, I, the Lord your God, the father, I hold your right hand. It's I who say, fear not. I'm the one who helps you. I'm the one who helps you. Exile is a lonely place, friends. We, we live in, in a sense of exile. We do. We, we've been delivered. If we belong to Jesus, we've been delivered. But we still await. We're still living in this life. We're, we're, waiting. we're in the already, but the not yet. We're waiting for Christ to come again and to take us home. To free us from all the sin that really entangles us fully and finally. To live forever with Him where He'll come wipe away all of our tears. Like a dad wipes away the tears of a child. Exile is a lonely place. Exile is a dangerous place. It's a scary place. Some of you came in here this morning just filled with anxiety over stuff. Filled with fear. It's hard to see how God is at work sometimes when we're living in the exile. We need the immeasurable reassurances of God our Father. We need to hear Him say like He does in verse 17. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. That they're in exile, but God is not going to forsake them. You are in exile, but God is not going to forsake you. He is your Father, and He loves you. 
He's the one who says, I will never leave you or forsake you. I am with you. Fear not. I'm your father. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you. I'm holding your hand. I'm holding your hand. If we were to finish out this, this section and look, we'd also find a God who refreshes us. Who, I, I open rivers on the bare heights, he says in verse 18, and fountains in the midst of valleys. I'm going to bring forth refreshing from places that you can't even imagine. I'll make the wilderness a pool of water and dry land springs of water. I will refresh you in ways you can't picture. I'll put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, the olive. The, I'll sit in the desert, the cypress, the plain and the pine together. He's, he's planting trees in places where trees wouldn't be normally planted. Where trees wouldn't normally grow. So that when they're trekking out of exile, they're going to find not just refreshing, but shade. God is providing for them. He's protecting them. He's refreshing them. He says, come, find your rest in me. Find your rest in me. He's our Father. He loves us. We need these fatherly reassurances. We've got to be able to be reminded of these. We've got to find comfort in these. We need the Spirit to drill these home in our hearts for us to be able to open this up and not say, that sounds nice, but to say, you know what? My God is with me. I don't have to be afraid. He will strengthen me. He will help me. I don't have to fashion my own gods or figure out how to do this on my own. My father loves me. Absolutely loves me. You know, a couple years ago, um, almost two years ago, I participated in something up here called Redemption Group Immersion. Wonderful and horrible at the same time. That's what Redemption Group Immersion is. I've been through that, you know what I'm talking about. There's no adjective for Redemption Group Immersion. That's what we decided at Two Pillars. Um... And uh, Jeff hit. Is, he, is Jeff here? He's either sleeping in or doing the second service thing. I remember something that Jeff hit said. You guys know Jeff? Some of you know Jeff. Jeff hit said something. We we're in the room in the redemption group experience. I don't remember if he said this to me or to somebody else. That's just the way the spirit works in these things. You're like, I don't even remember. And he said this. He says, um, I think what you need to hear is that God, your Father, wants you to just crawl up into His lap and rest. You're full of fear, you're full of anxiety. What you need to do is just crawl up into your father's lap, your heavenly father's lap, and rest. And man, I remember thinking, what kind of weak, effeminate, wussy flavor Christianity is this guy preaching? He was absolutely right, wasn't he? Absolutely right. It took another year for God to help me to see how right he really was. Would you receive these immeasurable, reassurances of God the Father this morning as I pray over us. Heavenly Father, Lord, we're grateful that we can turn to your word. We can open it up. We can read it. It's difficult to understand at times. We can, we can push through that. We can seek to, to, to learn. We can do the hard brain work that is required. We can learn context, but thank God we can also learn devotion. Father, my prayer for the people in this room is that we would know and experience the immeasurable reassurances of you as Father. Or that we wouldn't be afraid because we know that you're with us. That that wouldn't just sound pithy. That that would be impactful. That we would truly learn to rest in what it means for you to be our our Father, to find our safety, our security, our strength, our help to be upheld by you. 
Lord, I'm remembered of last night being witnessed to by a 75-year-old woman at a block party who through joyous tears in her eyes says, and then he helped me to see that I was his child. And and what a wonderful thing it is to be a child of God. And and Lord, I pray that, that, that we would perhaps respond with that same sort of joyous tears that wells up for us, that it wouldn't grow old, that it wouldn't grow stale, that it wouldn't grow in any way less relevant for us, that when 50 years from now, or however long you might give us, Lord, that we would be able to say what an amazing thing it is to be a child of God and to know the Father's love. Lord, weld that into our hearts this morning, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.